A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. Remember that old-fashioned idea? The two people who disagree about politics could sit down, talk, each would see the other's point of view. LBJ used to quote scripture as he headed into political negotiations, come let us reason together. Now, of course, we all realize that that's impossible. I'm overstating for a fact, but you know what I mean, right? There was this famous moment a few years ago when all this seemed way more possible, a moment which feels so long ago now. It came about because of this thing that happened at a presidential press conference. Before I take your questions, I want to talk for a few minutes about the progress we're making on health insurance reform. That, of course, is Barack Obama. The year is 2009. One of my coworkers here at the radio show, Robin Semyon, has been revisiting this piece of very recent history because it is so recent but feels like it's almost quaint, the fact that people thought that sitting down and talking together might work. Hey, Robin. Hey, Ira. Okay, so I talked to Dan Pfeiffer. He's the deputy communications guy in the Obama White House at the time. Mm -hmm. He was there in the room for that press conference. So beforehand, they'd gone over with the president the 10 specific reporters they wanted him to call on. And he got to the end of that list. And instead of going off stage, and you can tell uh, the president was feeling very good about his performance, because it's usually when he thinks he's doing well that he will uh, take more questions. And uh, nothing ever good ever comes of the, the one more question. All right. I tried to make that short so that Lynn Sweet would get her last question in. Thank you, Mr. President. And I remember this question like it was yesterday. Recently, Professor Henry Lewis Gates Jr. was arrested at his home in Cambridge. What does that incident say to you, and what does it say about race relations in America? Well, uh, I should say at the outset that uh, Skip Gates is a friend, uh, so I may be a little biased here. Uh, I don't know all the facts. Okay, so just to remind everybody, um, Henry Louis Gates Jr., a famous Harvard professor, African-American scholar, he comes home one night, he's trying to get into his own house, and he has a problem getting in, like the keys don't work or something. And someone sees him and calls the police. The cops show up, and the responding officer, Sergeant James Crowley, he learns that it is, in fact, Gates' own house. But then they get into an argument, and it escalates, and they both have words, and then Gates gets arrested. Right. So, okay, so this comes up at the press conference. Yeah, and President Obama is so comfortable in his skin. He is so casual in this moment that he even makes this little joke that is impossible to imagine him making now. Right? I mean, if I was trying to jigger in, well, I guess this is my house now, so it probably wouldn't happen. But let's say my old house in Chicago. Um, here I'd get shot. Okay, but then he says this. This is the part that's going to cause all the trouble. I think it's fair to say, number one, any of us would be pretty angry. Number two, that the Cambridge police uh, acted stupidly in arresting somebody when there was already proof that they were in their own home. And number three, what I think we know separate and apart from this incident, is that uh, there is a long history in this country of African Americans and Latinos uh, being stopped by law enforcement disproportionately. And that, that's just a fact. So the night ends, and, and you're thinking that was pretty good? Yeah, I thought fine. Yeah, they, we survived, which is the goal of any press conference. Usually we would do a press conference, I would walk back with him um, and sort of do, like do post-game analysis. But in this case, I think he might have gone upstairs to bed, because I'm pretty sure we were in the East Wing, in the state dining room. Um, so I don't remember talking to him about it that night. He might have talked to Valerie right afterwards. Valerie Jarrett, one of Obama's senior advisors, she was at the press conference, too. And I remember listening to the answer and thinking, yeah, that sounds right. And then when he said the word stupidly, I paused for a minute, and then I thought about it, and I said, all right, well, when somebody gets arrested in their own home, that is pretty odd, right? And I didn't give much more thought to it, but by the time I got from the East Room uh, in the residence back to my office in the West Wing, it had blown up. Oh, that night? I mean, literally within six or seven minutes. It was. It just went viral right away. It was a big deal almost instantly. The reaction to him saying the word stupidly just was an instant problem. 
After accusing police of acting stupidly for arresting a Harvard professor in his own home, President Obama came under fire. Uh, Cambridge police are not stupid. I think everybody that knows us knows that. I think the president should make an apology to all law enforcement personnel throughout the entire country who took offense to this. This president, I think, has exposed himself as a guy over and over and over again who has a deep-seated hatred for white people or the white culture. I don't know what it is. I'm not saying that he doesn't like white people. I'm saying he has a problem. He has a, this guy is, I believe, a racist. That was Glenn Beck on Fox News. Kind of famously. Yeah. So that was one reaction, but simultaneously, civil rights groups are calling the White House and thanking Obama for putting a spotlight on this issue that was important to them. So essentially, President Obama had effortlessly divided the country with this one word, stupidly. It was not intended to trigger, uh, polarize the police from the communities that they serve and protect. It was really kind of an offhanded comment. And if perhaps he hadn't said stupidly, things would have gotten, would not have gotten as derailed as they did. Um, if he had, if he had said, for example, it's understandable that Skip would be annoyed that a police officer would address would arrest him in his home. Okay, I think people would have said, "Yeah, I'd be annoyed." But when he said something about the police officer's intent or behavior, I think that's what got under people's skin. So inside the White House, they go into full crisis mode. They're hoping it'll die down, but it doesn't. So they come up with this idea to invite Gates and Crowley to the White House to sit down and have a beer. And then that led the press to become very interested in what I believe they they deemed the beer summit. And there were demands for them to cover the beer summit as if it would be some violation of government (laughs) transparency if they did not get a chance to take a picture of the beer summit. Right. Um, And yeah, we didn't want to make it Those are nice pictures of the garden. So they get together for beers to calm the nation down. People take pictures. And as we all know, that did not work. Yeah, no, it still comes up. Like a month ago, as you know, our colleague Zoe Chase was Mm -hmm. at a Trump rally in New Hampshire to talk to people there about why the country is so divided. And two separate people brought this up on their own, pointed to this as the moment that they knew that Obama was out to divide the country. What he did, his his first, what, uh, within his first year, he went after the cops in Cambridge. That's the thing that started I think that's when it really started. He he started, uh, just just the things that he did, uh, starting with the the beer summit we had in Cambridge. You know, all these dumb things that he did, you know. It was his his agenda. Okay, so beer summit did not unify America. Right. I have thought about this so much since it happened. Just the casual way that President Obama stepped into this. I've wondered if he was like, I set the table already with the race conversation as a candidate so people know where I'm coming from. I've wondered if maybe he was just trying to test the waters right then. Maybe he just thought, well, let's just see how, let's just see where we are. I don't know that there was that much thought, I think, to your point, and, I ha- and, and honestly, Robin, I haven't thought about this before you put it to me, but I'm sure because the race speech had gone so well and was embraced broadly mm. and was so raw and honest about mm-hmm. himself, he hoped that people had a better sense of who he was. And because he'd won the presidency um, and had comported himself throughout his short tenure at that point as the president for all of America. I think perhaps he thought he had the standing to say that and and not experience the backlash. And so that was a teaching moment, too, that, you know, for him, for him, for all of us. Yeah. Dan told me he thinks that it wasn't what Obama said but that he was the first black president in the White House. And that if it wasn't this, it would have been something else. Okay, but if the goal of the beer summit was just three people sitting around trying to understand each other a little bit better, like, even for those people, did it work? I mean, yeah, it kind of did. Like, they were really mad before. And then after the beer summit, Sergeant Crowley does this press conference where he says, you know, we agree that we both have a lot to learn from each other and we want to stay in touch. And they stay in touch? Yeah, it seems like it. Since then, um, Gates has said that he and Sergeant Crowley have developed a really good relationship. And then he 
did this thing. You know, he has this PBS TV show where he tests celebrities' DNA and tells them about their history. Mm -hmm. Um, So he asked Crowley to do a DNA test and found out that they have a common Irish ancestor, a cousin. So, Robin, in other words, like it is possible for people to get along and uh, and become friends and see each other's points of view, especially around the magic potion that we call beer. But uh, we live in a country where uh, most of the nation, for one reason or another, chooses not to believe that. Seems that way, yeah. Well, that is actually our show today. People sitting down, trying to see the other person's point of view over beer. In all these stories, no kidding, beer is involved at a critical turning point. In one story, the fate of an entire nation is at stake. Actually, now that I think of that, it's true for the other story, too. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. Stay with us. Taquan, one for my baby and one more for the road. So with everybody in the United States and Europe breaking off into political groups who seem to understand each other less and less these days, this German journalist named Bastian Berbner has spent the last three years reporting on people from these kinds of groups that dislike and mistrust each other and see things very differently, who actually sit down and try to get along. He's traveled to a bunch of different countries looking for examples of this, where people do indeed somehow come to see eye to eye. So, for example, in Denmark, he interviewed policemen who decided that the very best way to combat the most radical people they faced, jihadists and neo-Nazis, was to invite them in for coffee, with, I have to say, amazing results. And the most extreme example of this that he found was in Botswana, where for decades now, the government has been running this kind of big, I don't know, social experiment to fight tribalism. Basically, what happens is that every year, the government tells thousands of civil servants to just pack up their belongings and move, sometimes very far from home, to live and work with people who are sometimes very different from them. This plan is not popular. Sometimes a parent is forced to work hundreds of miles from their own family. But the government has stubbornly stuck with this policy for decades. Here's Bastian. When Botswana became independent from Britain in 1966, it was one of the last African countries to do so. Imagine... The colonialists leave, and you are the first president of Botswana. For years, all around you, you have seen the same story over and over again. Countries become independent, ethnic violence follows. Mali became independent in 1960. Two years later, the Tuareg started a civil war. Congo, same story. Soon after its independence, the province of Katanga tried to break away. Nigeria, independence in 1960. Very soon, the Igbos and Hausa started clashing. Having seen all of that, the early leaders in Botswana knew they had a problem. Because the exact thing that had fueled the violence in all those countries, they had it as well. Um, If you think about that these borders were just drawn up, and some of them really straight borders, you know, they could have cut through a person, literally, you know. This is Unity Dao, the foreign minister of Botswana. She was a kid back in the 60s, when a few people in London drew the borders of her country on a map creating Botswana. And like in all those other places in Africa, they were putting a bunch of ethnic groups together that didn't really like each other. The Kalanga in the north, the Bakwena south of the Kalahari Desert, the Bangwato in the center. In Botswana, everyone refers to these groups as tribes, so that's what I'm going to say in this story. In Botswana, there were 20 tribes, give or take. They spoke different languages, had different traditions, and now they were forced into one country. So the early leaders figured, to avoid that kind of violence here, what we need to do is break up tribal identities and form a true nation. No more us, no more them, just a we. But how do you do that? They came up with a plan. First, they decided everyone needs to understand each other. So in schools, they would only teach English and Setswana. The other tribal languages, not at all. Second, To keep people from fighting over land, they gave a piece of land to anyone who wished. And they said, everything underneath that land belongs to the state. This is important because this is one of the diamond richest countries on earth. So what happens if I'm given a a piece of land, I settle there, I dig, and I find a rich diamond mine? (laughs) You get moved. What do you mean? That you get moved. You have to declare that diamond, you must surrender it. 
it's against the law to actually to to keep it for yourself. You can't just find a diamond and, and say, oh, I found another Once you find it, it is not yours. There's a law that just very clearly says it is it's not yours. It belongs to everybody. So um, you would just get another piece of land someplace else. I would be so frustrated. Well, I'm sorry for your troubles. <laughs> <laughs> there was one more thing, probably the most important one people told me, the transfers. Remember, each tribe had its territory. So if you were from a certain village in the north, you were most likely Kalanga. If you were from the central district, probably Banguatu. So they figured, why not make all civil servants move to a different tribal area from their own for a few years? That would make sure that there are teachers and doctors everywhere in the country, but also it would force people to mix. It would be an anti-tribalism tool. When you move people around, you are indirectly forcing um, them to take their culture to that new home, to adopt the new culture, and even to call that home. You're forcing alliances, you know, and um, you're forcing friendships. Can you force friendships? Does that kind of thing work? The transfers affected everyone working for the government, by far the largest employer in the country. Engineers, administrators, doctors, nurses, and most of all, teachers. When I was in Botswana, I talked to 20 teachers to find out if this works and what it's like for the people going through it. I'm going to tell you the story of one of the teachers, a woman named Carol Ramolotsana. In a way, Carol's story is typical of what I found, but she also stood out to me. I'll tell you why in a minute. So the teachers would always ask you, what do you want to be when you, you grow up? I was like, I want to be a teacher like you, ma'am. Carol told me she became a teacher for the reasons a lot of people do. She liked the one she had as a kid. This lady was a lady who always, every morning when she gets to school, she will look at us, she wouldn't shout at us. If you didn't comb your hair, she will say, my baby, come here. She will comb your hair nicely. She would ask us, did you have breakfast? She was this kind of a lady who always come with fruits to work. What did she bring? She would, most of the time she brought oranges. And she will just sit there, cut the, the oranges and just give to us. And she said, you know, I love you so much. And we said, we love you, teacher. In 2004, Carol was working in a school in the capital city, Gaborone. She was 28 and everything was going great. She loved teaching. All her friends were in the city. At night, they went out to eat in Chinese restaurants. They went dancing. They were happy. But then one day, the head of the school where she taught called her in and handed her a letter. She was being transferred. With immediate effect. Oh, I, I, I still have the letter like now. You are transferred with immediate effect. The head of the school told her the name of the place she was going. Lenswelle Tower, Lions Hill. Oh God. I didn't even know the place. I asked him, where is that place? He told me it's a village, it's a small village. And I just saw from his eyes and his looks that he was just consoling me. Oh, so he knew the place. He and knew the place and he knew the place wasn't that good. Carol had known about the transfers, of course, but she had always figured maybe she would get lucky. Well, she didn't. She had just paid for some accounting classes. If she went to this village, she wasn't going to get her money back. She feared that she would lose everything that was important to her. Her friends, her clubs, her restaurants. And she liked being among people like herself. People she had things in common with. And there was nothing that I can do. Did you try? I tried. Oh. I tried. I, I spent about a month trying moving from one office to another. Just to no avail. She'd walk into the Ministry of Education with her letter, saying, please, can't you put me somewhere closer? Or at least delay so I can finish my classes? She wasn't getting anywhere. Most people don't. That woman, Unity Dao, before she became foreign minister, she was the minister of education. And she had to deal with people like Carol all the time. She told me that once a teacher brought in her elderly mother, pleading, please don't transfer me, I have to take care of her. Unity said that woman could barely walk and it was clear the woman wouldn't live much longer. Still, she said, sorry, lots of people your age have an elderly parent. I can't do anything for you. Carol couldn't get out of it either. She was desperate. 
I was telling my mother, you know, mama, I want to come back home, you know, this is what is happening, you know, I don't think I can go on, you know, being a teacher. But my mother, on the other hand, was saying, no, my daughter, just go. Let's go, you will see how it goes, just go. Carol knew nothing about the place where she was headed. I really didn't know them. You know, the fact that we are speaking different languages and I wasn't even interested, really, I wasn't even interested in knowing them that much. To me, I just felt like they are just, you know, people that I, I don't have to bother knowing them. Carol's tribe was kind of the elite. The founder of the state, for example, he was from her tribe. And it was his grandfather who, back in the 1800s, went to London to negotiate with Queen Victoria. The place where she was going? Very different story. She says they used to be enslaved by another tribe. One day, the ministry sent a truck to take Carol things to the new place. She didn't go with it. She stayed for two more weeks. And then, reluctantly, she got in her car. Drove out of the city. And when she approached the village... There was a building... An old building, you know, I was like, oh God, what is this? On the other side of the road, there was something like, maybe they wanted to build a filling station, but they didn't, you know, go along with the, the structure, but they just left the things there. There was this tank, the tank that showed that this place was supposed to be a, a filling station. I've been there. It's remote. Dusty, makeshift houses, many without running water. The school, just a few houses scattered on the deep red earth. Carol's house was on the school grounds. Campus housing for both kids and teachers is pretty standard in Botswana, actually. She got her keys, opened the door, all her stuff was there, in boxes. She cried and slept. For days she wouldn't leave the house. A few times someone knocked, probably a fellow teacher or her boss. She ignored it. She had brought food for weeks, rice, pasta, 10 pounds of dried chicken and tons of hard cider. Finally, she showed up to work. It was really odd. It was odd. Like I said, the people in that village, even the teachers were like them. So I was wearing heels, high-heeled shoes. I was carrying a handbag. Some were gossiping behind. Some were telling me straight, you know, my sister, this is a village. Eventually, you would leave your handbag at home. You would leave your high-heeled shoes. Then I said, for what? This is me. No one is going to change me. That's what I said. And you know, because of their attitude and what they said, I also had an attitude towards them. It's worth noting how this is basically the opposite of what the program is supposed to do. She's forced to go there. She didn't necessarily think anything bad about the people at first, but now she did. She didn't notice what she had in common with them. She noticed how they were different. Carol found herself in a corner that she hadn't really been in to start with. When I was angry with my, the Ministry of Education, I was angry with every, everyone. They have abused me. They have you know, ill-treated me. So I didn't even want to be a teacher anymore. At times I would just go to, to class, I would look at these kids, I would just give them a book to read and I would go back to, to my room. Wow, so, you, so the students would sit there The by students themselves. would sit there by themselves, you know. They would just read their books. I don't know whether they would be reading or making noise. Did you think to yourself what happened to the girl who brought oranges to, this, to the classroom? At that time... You know, that thing didn't, didn't even cross my mind. Most of the teachers I talked to told me stories like this, but many were reluctant to go on the record. Carol, not so much. She was like, what the hell? This is what the government does to us. People should know about it. After a few weeks in the village, she had finished all the cider she had brought. So that night, she drove to the local bar and went in. I was just looking at these dirty people. To me, they were very dirty. And I wouldn't even look at them and see someone clean there. Dirty in what way? Dirty like they were not bathing. They have a smell. So most of all, you remembered the smell? 
Yeah. It was horrible. I'm telling you. You know, the smell of armpits and, you know, everything dirty and the shoes. You know, to me, I was somebody in a different class. They were not the type of people that I would chat with, I would sit down with, I would laugh with. You know, in a bar, when you, when you get into a bar, you know, there would be these guys, XA, hey, baby, you know, such things. And I would just look at them with this harsh face. Rolling your eyes. Yes, and they would see, oh, 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 this one. And they will keep quiet. And I'll get to the, to the lady who's selling and I'll buy and get outside and get into my car and sit there and drink. How many beers would you have a night? Around six. Six beers? Yes. The whole point of transferring teachers around the country is to expose them to people who are different from themselves. But whenever possible, Carol just tried to avoid that. Like the teachers, for example, they had a break room where they could eat lunch together and socialize. I only went there when there is a meeting, only. I never sat with the teachers there, never. From, from the class, I go back to my house. I never sat with them. Lunch break? I never sat with them, never. I would rather sit in my car. After three months, she got a housemate, another teacher from a different part of the country. And one Saturday, he suggested going out to this nearby town that's just a little bit bigger. They brought their camping chairs because on weekends the bars can get so crowded that you don't find a place to sit. So they take the chairs, sit outside the bar, and Carol feels happy because the people there seem more like her kind of people. <laughs> no, we just had some drinks, you know. It was a new environment for us. <laughs> Why are you laughing? I'm remembering exactly what happened. <laughs> You know, we were just sitting there chatting and my housemate just went to the toilet and there was this guy who approached me. He said, hi. I said, hi. Okay, my name is Tabo. Can I please have your number? And then I was like, what do you want to do with my number? He said, no, I just wanted to chat with you. I feel like, you know, we can chat. Sometimes she gives out a fake number, but that guy, he got the real one. I just felt like talking to him, you know, being nice to him and chatting with him, you know. I just felt something from him the moment he came. Just, I don't know, maybe that was the clinch of love, I don't know. Yes. What did he look like? Tom. Yeah. <laughs> He's handsome. <laughs> What's so handsome about it? No, I, I think beauty lies in the eyes. You know, maybe when you look at him, you will see him ugly. But when I look at him, handsome. He seemed like the guys she hung out with in the city, not like the people in the village. They talked a bit with the guys he was with. We were chatting, just like, yeah. yeah. And they said, oh, you guys, are you from here? We said, no. Then they said, where are you from? I kept quiet. Then my housemate said, we are from Linzolitao. And they was like, what? Tabo, the guy who had asked for her number, said, that's my home village. It's where I grew up. My family lives there. So this guy Carol liked, he was from the town she found so repulsive. And, you know, I know my, my housemate was laughing because he knew very well that I hate the place and everybody in that place. I, I always told him, I, you know, I don't like this place. I hate this place. What happened next is exactly what you think happened next. He visited her the next weekend, took her to parties, introduced her to friends. They got together. They traveled to South Africa, to the north of Botswana to see elephants. When they went out to dinner, he'd order the same thing she ordered. He lived a few hours away, so they only saw each other on weekends. But they talk on the phone. Would, you know, love chats, love chats. What do you mean, love chats? Mm, you know, he would ask me how I am, am I fine? If I wasn't well, I would tell him, no, today I have a headache or what. 
discuss those things. Well, that's not a love chat, is it? It is. How <laughs> you, if you want to know how your partner is, that's the love chat. The transfer program was created to Fortune Nation. It's funny to think that this could be the real secret to how it might actually work. People fall in love. For Carol, after she met Tabo, everything changed. I I started loving the the place. How um, how, how did that change? Hmm? How did that change? You know, you have someone in the village. He's your boyfriend. He moves around, showing you things in the village. You tend to love the the, the place. What did you discover about the place that before you hadn't seen? Ah, it's just a village. There isn't anything much. What do you love about it? You know, those 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 people, they are they they are loving people. You're smiling. They are yes, they are loving people. I love them. I love them. She became friends with the owner of the smelly bar. She cooked for the soccer team. She was invited to be a judge in a beauty contest, which is kind of a big deal in the village. She went to weddings and funerals. There was even a woman who gave her a piece of land. I've built a house there. No way. I'm telling you. No way. Serious. <laughs> <laughs> the former education minister, Unity Dao, she says what Carol experienced is actually pretty common and a big part of the program's success. What happens when you put new people around? Maybe 80% will come back, 20% will stay, they get married. Oh, so like it's a massive dating program. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's me. I mean... It's uh, like a government-sponsored dating thing. Oh, like pe people go someplace, they fall in love. First of all, I'm going to say that you joke, but the, the, the truth is that it's just the nature of how humans move and acclimatize and call those homes. A few years after she had moved to the village, Carol finally felt at home. She had built that house, her relationship with Tabu was going great, Carol was taking oranges to class again. She did still bring her handbag and her heels to class every day. In fact, one of the women who teased her about it, a science teacher, she started bringing her handbag too. Carol was still a little bit of a snob about the locals, but overall she was as happy here as she had been in the city. But there is something I haven't told you about the transfer program. You don't just get transferred once. For teachers, it's every five years. Sometimes a little less, sometimes a little more. So one day... The school had called us. It was a lady. She told us that one of you has to go. There were five teachers teaching religious education. One too many. We asked her, what criteria are you going to use? So she basically said... Whoever came first would be the one to go. And definitely I knew it was me. So I think for about four or five months I was waiting for the letter, knowing that any time I would be going. That, that must be so frustrating. I mean, now you're there, mm -hmm. you know people intimately. Yes. And then you know that you have to start from the bottom. Yes. And you, you, you have to It's really frustrating. It. Yeah, it is. It yeah, is. Yeah. Mm, it is. It is frustrating. It is frustrating a lot. On the other hand, if it weren't for the transfer program, she wouldn't have met Tabo. Are you happy with them? Yeah, we are very much happy. Okay. And we are planning to get married. Oh! Mm. Probably sometime April, May. This was December last year. They had been together for 15 years at that point, survived three transfers. Tabo had never moved with her. As a soldier, he was also told by the government where to work. But then, a couple of months after the interview, I was texting with Carol, and she told me she had broke up with Tabo just before the wedding. She had found out that he was having an affair. Do you blame the transfer program for the end of your relationship with Tabo at all, sometimes? Not really. A person's mentality... It's not to be blamed in on anyone or the government, you know. I don't. But if if it wasn't for the transfer uh, program, you would have been able to stay with him, maybe. And maybe. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Don't want to speculate. Yeah. 
all the teachers I talked to found the transfer thing mostly annoying. Some of them found it so disruptive that at some point they considered quitting. Like, there was this one guy. After being transferred, he fell in love, much like Carol. He had a kid. But then he was transferred again. And again. And again. He worked in seven schools. He had four kids with four women. And he was single again when I talked to him. He blamed the transfers. And himself. Recently, the government has made some changes. They now allow married people to move together. They've tried to reunite couples who've been split up. They also allow swaps, so if you find another teacher across the country who is willing to switch jobs, they'll usually agree. So yes, they try to make things a little easier. But still, this policy is supposed to be intrusive. That's the idea. All the officials I talked to acknowledged the hardships it causes, and all of them stood by it. Yes, it was sometimes bad for individual people, but it was good for the people as a whole. In fact, they say it's a big reason why they are a whole. The effect of the transfers has never been systematically analyzed. There is no study. And Botswana had other things going for it that helped them unify. There was less of a colonial legacy to overcome. The British had kind of ignored the country and ruled it from neighboring South Africa. And Botswana enacted those laws that prevented any one group from getting rich of the country's diamond wealth. But the officials I talked to were convinced the transfers were essential. They helped make their country drawn on a map 50 years ago into a unified nation. One that has never seen war, one that is the least corrupt country in Africa, and one of Africa's best working democracies. And the economy? From the mid-60s to the mid-90s, Botswana had the fastest growing economy in the world. Not the United States, not emerging China, Botswana. It works miracles. This is the president of Botswana, Mokwezi Masisi. I had a chance to speak to him a few weeks ago. In the same way as early on, when the education system was still in its nascent stages, we had boarding schools. So you had people from this part of the country going over here and there. And, you know, and people marry from everywhere. And that works for us. I asked if some version of this might work elsewhere, like in the US and other countries that are so divided. It could be a fix. But, you know, um, um I don't really want to comment too deeply about the issues of another nation state. Mm -hmm. You'd understand why. But I do have views. <laughs> They must just copy us. Copy from us. It's hard to imagine the US shipping teachers from New York City to red states and vice versa. If you attempted this with teachers in Germany, where I live, you'd probably have riots on your hands. But we could try something to get different kinds of people talking to each other face to face. Everybody I spoke with in Botswana told me the transfer program works. And everything I found in my reporting suggests it works. But I also got a glimpse of its limits. One day I gave a woman a ride, a young French teacher. We sat in the car waiting for the rain to pass and she talked about her family. A family of teachers, a family shaped by transfers. My father was a teacher and he was posted in another area. My mother was a teacher and she was posted in another area. So he got on, did his naughty business there. She got upset and left. But then I grew up knowing that that the teacher was my father, but my father was someone else. He was from another village somewhere in another tribe. So in essence, my mother raised me as a Motswana and not a Motswana in other words a Botswanan so i hate that question because which which question omogai omogai yeah what does that mean what's your tribe or khaikigai where's your home village and is that a very common question it's a very common question everyone will ask you that wherever you go that's the first thing people will ask you omogai omogai otsakai You get what I mean? So I don't like that. I'm just a Motswana. It doesn't matter where I come from. It doesn't matter where my village is. Motswana. And it's, yeah. And that's not just an answer to shut the people up. It's, it's, it's you, what do you really it's, feel? It's how I feel. I don't, I don't understand why we have to always identify with our tribes. 
do you realize that this is like the, in a nutshell the, the Botswana story? Really? <laughs> no, I don't. Don't you think? I, I guess now you've given me that aha moment, Jorge. Yeah, hey, I'm Simbukushu Seherero. Then she started listing the Botswana tribes. Sekalaka, Sekalakadi, Sekatla, Mungwato, Mungwaketi. We are distributed all over the country. And we are all one. Thank you to the transfers. <laughs> I guess. So yes, it has worked. Here is a woman who first and foremost identifies as Botswanan, who hasn't spoken her native language in years. But also, it hasn't worked. Not all the way. I mean, they tried the most radical thing that I found in my years of reporting on this. They did it for decades. They moved hundreds of thousands of people around. But still the question is being asked. What's your tribe? Bastian Berbner is a reporter for Die Zeit. If you speak German, he has a book about all this called In German, 180 Degrees, Stories Against Hate. He's looking for a publisher in English. Carol, by the way, after splitting up with Tabo, she met somebody new. They're planning to get married later this year. Coming up, a bar where everybody knows your name, and that is exactly the problem. That's in a minute from Chicago Bubba Radio when our program continues. This American Life from Ira Glass. Today's program, Beer Summit, stories about people who disagree, trying to get along, aided by the magical healing power of beer. We arrived at Act Two of our program, Act Two, Loggerheads. So we got a tip about this next story from a source I have to say we do not get many story ideas from. Ben Cajon explains. Yeah, so a couple of years ago, I called this guy in Indiana. Hello, Ben. Hi, Pete here in South Bend. How are you? Mayor Buttigieg, how are you? Good. I apologize for running behind schedule today. It's uh... no, I uh, I hear you have a whole city to run. So uh, <laughs> I... <laughs> this was way before head. Mayor Pete started running for president. Uh, we, These uh, days, I don't imagine he does a ton of hour-long chats about the direction of the Democratic Party with reporters, which that's what we were doing. And in the middle of that, he mentioned this thing that happened in South Bend. I went to an event not long ago at the Clay Democratic Club, which is another sort of. It's on the north side of town, and it's uh, it resembles a dive bar. Uh, it's a place you can go for a concert and, and, and card game. And um, uh, they had a big controversy because about half of their board voted for Donald Trump. Democratic club. <laughs> Mayor Buttigieg was so matter of fact. It took me a second to register just how wild what he was saying was that at one of the oldest, largest, most important Democratic clubs in his hometown. Half the leadership had voted for Donald Trump in 2016. All right, keep in touch. In other words, it was like in the tiny world of this one bar, you had what the entire Democratic Party's going through. In some key places, like the Midwest, a bunch of Democrats deserted, and the Democrats lost, and the rest are left trying to figure it out. Are they mad at those people? Sure. Can they win those people back? What the heck is going to happen with those people? So, a little while ago, I went to the Clay Democratic Club to see how this was all working out there. The Clay Democratic Club, it's sort of like an American Legion hall, crossed with a bingo hall, crossed with a neighborhood bar. Pool costs $1.25, beers are $2.50. Because it's a private club, you can smoke, which is a well-exercised right. There's a stage in the back for drawings, bands, karaoke night, As a kid from Wisconsin, I would say it's pretty much everything a bar should be. Behind the stage, there's the club's logo, a red and blue donkey, with the name Clay Democratic Club over it. There's tables that the club moves around depending on what's happening. And at the bar, there are regulars who always seem to be in the same spots, regardless of what's happening. Every time I stopped in, it was Marty on the right end of the bar, Denny in the middle, and then down at the far left end of the bar... Liz, Liz McCombs. The nights of elections, it'll be packed down here. Bands and food. It's a huge event down here. This whole thing started, Liz told me, 
On the eve of Indiana's last presidential primary, May 2nd, 2016, this was a Monday night, Donald Trump was in town. He was holding a big rally in South Bend, just a few miles south of the bar. They had it on all the bar's TVs. We are just hours away from a critical vote in Indiana. So everyone's watching the coverage of Trump on the bar's TVs, drinking. There was a lot of offhand comments and things like that because we were Democrats, so we definitely wanted to, for lack of better words, diss the Republicans and Trump. And then it was over. The rally ended. When the rally was let now, and they had it on the news, so the 11 o'clock news, and somebody said, oh my God, that's Ross. And it was. Right there on the TV, in the crowd streaming out of the Trump rally, was this guy that everybody in the bar recognized, a guy named Russ Thomas. Everyone recognized Russ because he was a longtime member of the Clay Democratic Club. But on top of that, Russ Thomas was the sitting president of the Clay Democratic Club. And then everybody, can I be blunt? They were, oh, hell no, is what everybody was saying. Um, and Shock then, and, and awe. Then, Shock and awe. I called Russ to hear his version of all this. Russ, I'll say, is gruff, but nice. He's a real connoisseur of short answers. What is it that convinced you to support President Trump? I just like him. But, like, were there policies or certain issues? I just like him. He did have more than that to say about the rally, though. Mainly that he was completely and totally unapologetic. If you had known that people at the club were watching TV that night... And they were seeing you on, on TV. If I'd have known they were watching, I'd have had a, ban- had a banner that said, Russ is here. <laughs> I'd have waved at him. How you doing, guys? Russ says the rally was exciting. He went there with a buddy that night, another Democrat turned Trump supporter. It wasn't easy. Russ has problems with his legs, and by his account, he could hardly walk. His friend couldn't use one foot because of diabetes. But they willed themselves through the walk to South Bend's convention center. And then they stood and waited until Donald Trump made his entrance to the Rolling Stones' Start Me Up. Wow. So if I'm facing the, the president, where, where were you in the room? He's like right over there. Russ points, indicating he was in the back, back towards the back right corner of the room. Yeah, I'm back on this back wall back here standing. But we had such incredible crowds. Look at this room as an example, right into the corners, people. Hello, corner. How far away were you from him? I was almost to the other wall. So, so pretty far in the back. That was awesome. Everybody like clapping and yelling. Awesome. Indiana's primary comes pretty late in the process. But that night, Trump was on the verge of effectively locking up the Republican nomination. And he told Russ and his buddy and the crowd there that their votes the next day could put them over the top. Now, Indiana's becoming very important. Usually by this time it's over and, you know, it doesn't matter. But this time, you folks belong where you belong. It's called Importantville, right? Importantville. I love it. Of course, that night in Importantville, not everyone was feeling so great about stuff. Specifically the patrons of one Democratic bar who'd been watching TV. Anger, embarrassment... Uh, rage. There was people that were raging. Again, Liz McCombs, longtime Clay Democratic Club member. It, it was it was every emotion, because you felt like the rug had been ripped out underneath your feet. It was like the Wizard of Oz. You're really a Republican running a Democratic Club. Never mind what's behind that curtain. It was exactly like the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> It probably seems like Russ could not have been more busted, but he was. The head of the St. Joseph County Democratic Party, that's the county where South Bend is, the head of the entire Democratic Party at that time was a guy named Jason Critchlow. Jason was outside the Trump rally that night, checking out the Trump supporters. And then what happened, he looks across the street, he told me. Who do I see? It's Russ fucking Thomas. He was 
I, I think he was wearing a hat. Like he was, it was one of those things where it wasn't an accident. He was just walking along the sidewalk. It was obvious this dude was going into the rally and was a Trump supporter, you know? Jason was like, I'm the county party chair. This is kind of a weird thing for me to get mixed up in, but also like kind of too big of a deal to just let go. You know, do I, I, how much of a fight do I want to pick over something? And this is their club, it's their rules. Not knowing what to do, Jason started calling and texting a small group of people who he knows go to the club. Eventually, he gets to Dan Hardman, former president of the Clay Democratic Club. He asked me what's going on. I told him, I said, Jason, I don't know. I'm not uh, an officer at the club anymore. Dan Hardman is like everything about the Clay Democratic Club turned into a person. His life seems to rhyme with everything about the place. Dan was born in South Bend in 1946, same year as the club. In the beginning, the founders didn't have enough money for a building. They just poured a basement and put a roof on it. Some of Dan's early memories are of being a little kid running around on the low-slung roof of that basement building while the adults were downstairs in the club. Dan was a member for years, eventually became vice president. Dan was president for seven years before Russ came in. For anything bad to happen down here kind of affects me emotionally because I've got such strong feelings for the membership and the club. My, my desire to have this club succeed is just humongous. I mean, I, I, any, anything goes wrong with this club, it's, I feel it's a part of me. And so do most of my officers. They, they feel that way. And, and that's the way the officers of the club should feel. The club is part of them. And, and uh, I don't mean your life revolves around it, but close to it. <laughs> Everyone at the club seems to love Dan, which is easy. He's not a big guy, but he seems big because he's so outgoing. He's a grandfather of 16, retired teamster, drove a truck for years, army veteran. He's got this completely bald head and a long gray goatee. When Dan got the call from Jason about Russ, it was the first he'd heard of any of this. Dan was reeling. What, what do you feel? I mean, the president of your club, your Democratic club, is seen at a rally for a Republican candidate for president. What are you doing, dude? I mean, you're put, putting a black mark on our party, on our club. Dan, who'd known Russ for years, ended up being the one to have to call him to see what this was about. I confronted him about it. Uh, why did you do that, Russ? Because I believe in the, the man. I'm, I'm, I support Trump. So I'm not Republican, but I support Trump. I said, you're the president of the Democratic Club. And, and you're doing that to your Democratic Party? It doesn't look very good, Russ. I mean, you could have sat at home and watched it on TV or any other venue. And he said, that's my right to do that. And I, I said, okay, I appreciate that. You have your rights to do whatever you want to do. I didn't raise hell or anything like that because it doesn't get you anywhere. At the club meeting that soon followed, Dan asked everyone to, quote, not crucify their friend for his beliefs. Right away, they wanted to kick him out of the club. Right away. They wanted to tar and feather the poor guy and run him off. Well, it wasn't me, but it was other people stating, he's gone, he's done, we're done. Again, Liz McCombs. Liz says she was friends with Russ, still is friends with Russ. But she says most people, at least the ones that spoke up at this meeting, drew a hard line about what he did. This Democratic club, we are old yellow dogs. And what that means is I'd rather vote for an old yellow dog than a Republican. So they just labeled him as a turncoat, and that was it. It was impossible. It was like he, 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 there was just no way that he could even function as president anymore. No, you lied to everybody. No, there's, no. He just, he did not understand what his position meant and how much it meant. Russ resigned as president. A couple people told me he wasn't doing that good of a job anyway. Russ denies that. The only thing Russ would say is that it was, quote, personal. No matter how many times I asked, that's what he said. What I do know, Russ submitted a very succinct letter of resignation shortly after the incident at the rally. 
No reasons, just that he was stepping down as president of the Clay Democratic Club. Dan Hardman came back for another term, like FDR. But what makes all of this complicated is that Russ quit as president. But he kept coming into the club because it's a great bar full of people he knows. And because Russ still considers himself a Democrat. Previously, now, in the future, he says he just likes Trump. He's outspoken. He's doing a good job. I got a lot of faith in him. I feel the same way about him that I did with Reagan. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So did you, you vote for Reagan? Yep. So would, uh, do you feel like there's a couple times in your life when, for the most part, you've been a Democrat, but there's been a few times in your life that you said, I'm voting for the Republican in this case? Exactly. I split my ticket every year, every, every vote. I still vote some Democrat. I voted Obama's first year. At this point, it seems like it became clear that the Russ-Thomas situation wasn't just going to be about Russ. When Russ did this, it split everybody apart. Because you're either a Democrat or you're not. Liz McComb says things changed at the club in the months that followed. When Dan Hardman came back as president, he told Russ if he was going to keep coming in, he had to be tactful about his support for Trump. But Dan also made sure Russ knew that he was still welcome. And so Russ continued to do some of the things he'd always done, like run karaoke at the club on Friday nights, which is how karaoke night turned into a time for people at the club to choose sides. So you had people gunning for Russ, that's true. And then you had Russ supporters, which I get, it's freedom of speech. You're allowed that, and you're allowed to do whatever you want, and that it, that's part of the Constitution, and I'm thankful every day we have that. That's fine in everybody's regular life. But what did those people do, like, when they would come down? How often would it happen that people would stir up trouble, sort of, about it Trump? It seemed after? like every weekend, because Russ was doing the karaoke, and it seemed like there was a fight every Friday night. Every time we played, somebody would just start yelling and being out of control because he was up on stage doing the karaoke. So he kind of made himself the target. Wait, so would it go both ways? Would it be like he would run the karaoke night and somebody would yell something at him? They would heckle him about what had happened? Absolutely. And then there were people that felt sorry for him. Because and they would defend him? Yes, because he's an aging man and they're uneducated and they didn't understand what he did. Russ estimates that maybe 10% of the club's members like President Trump. Others said the same thing. But most of the Trump supporters keep it quiet. Most, though definitely not all. Another contingent increasingly came into the club spoiling for a fight, looking to mix it up. Dan Hardman and Liz McCombs and a number of others say the loudest was a guy named Mike Powell. He would pound his fist on the bar, Trump, 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 Trump. Like Russ, Mike's a lifelong Democrat, member of the club for years, who decided to support Trump. Dan Hardman told me Mike would come into his office at the club and try to convince Dan to defect like he had. Again, here's Liz. Why would you come to a Democratic club to be a Trumper? Like, when you say that he would pound his fist on the bar and say, Trump, 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 like that is what he would say? Trump, Trump, Trump. Literally. And that's kind of how the Trumpers are. That's exactly how Mike Powell behaves. Surprisingly and unsurprisingly, Mike Powell sees this whole situation differently. Mike's account, he has not gone looking for fights about Trump. In fact, he feels, if anything, it's been the other way around. I mean, everybody knows how I feel. And if somebody sits down next to me and starts cutting down Trump, I'll say, like, you're talking to the wrong guy. <laughs> yeah, wrong guy. <laughs> Talk over there. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes they get mad and, Oh, well. <laughs> there was a blow-up over this situation at a board meeting at the club when they discussed Russ's support for Trump and the impact it was having. According to a few accounts I've heard, someone, a longtime Democrat, stood up and he said some version of half the board didn't even vote Democratic. Club president Dan Hardman shot back, saying that wasn't true. Though I guess that comment about half the board is what produced the story that spread through Democratic circles and eventually made its way to Mayor Buttigieg. 
At this meeting, Mike Powell told me he got called out as a Trump supporter, to which he yelled back, it's none of your business how I voted. Mike told me a staunch Democrat started shouting at Mike's wife, who was the club's financial secretary. He was pointing a finger in her face. Mike told me he went up to the guy after the meeting and told him if he pointed a finger in his wife's face again, he'd break it off and shove it up his ass. Dan Hardman says he's done what he could to limit the damage as stories like this have circulated. He wrote in the newsletter telling people not to believe everything they heard, making it clear that it was a Democratic club for Democrats. Dan told me leading up to all this, membership at the club had already been declining. But all this strife, it made it worse. We went down from from nearly 1,000 members to right now we're, we're looking at maybe 300. Okay. And, and and that membership is hard to to keep together because we can't excuse me, we can't get people to come down because uh, they they think that we turned our our backs on them. He means Democrats didn't think the club was really for Democrats anymore. And uh, there are some that uh, I haven't seen in oh heck three years. That must have been difficult to go through with a, a club that you'd been running and that you'd built over the course of years. Yeah. Oh, it was heartbreaking. It was really heartbreaking. I don't know. I don't know why they don't come back. Mike and Russ, the more they've come under attack from their Democratic friends, the more they've sought the company of those who agree with them. Russ told me these days he's relying almost entirely on Fox News. Both guys read a lot of conservative stuff that they get from other Trump supporters on the Internet. Democrats want open borders. President Obama wanted one world government. Mike said he doesn't want Muslims in our government. That scares the tar out of me, he said. I asked both of them what the Democrats might do to win them back, if that was even possible. Russ said maybe for 2024, but I'm sticking with Trump. Mike told me he liked some of what he heard from Tulsi Gabbard and Amy Klobuchar, but really, it was pretty unlikely. What do you think the Democrats don't understand about somebody like you or somebody like Russ, who identified for a long time as a Democrat and then they, and then they left for Trump? I don't they, think they care. That, that's the deal. They have an agenda, and they don't care what we think anymore. I mean, everything is about illegals and, and the poor and everything else. They don't care about uh, us anymore. They, they just don't. It's just like we're irrelevant, you know? You don't give a shit about us. So if there was a Democratic politician, though, and you felt like that is somebody who cares about a guy That's like a me. Deal. That's a big deal. That's the kind of thing that could get you back. That's huge, yes. You know, uh, it ain't just what Trump does, but it's about feeling like you matter. You know what I mean? If you think somebody don't give a crap about you, what does it matter? You know, you're going to go towards somebody that cares, somebody that, you, you know, think, thinks you matter. That's, that's, that's the bottom line. What about us? There's a certain schizophrenia to Russ and Mike's politics these days. Even though they support President Trump, their biggest concerns still do seem to be traditionally Democratic causes. Russ says he's concerned about health care. And if somebody could present a plan to get everybody covered, he'd be for that. Mike also worries about health care and the cost of prescription drugs, and about the quality of public education in America. They both told me the story of the Democratic Party they were loyal to, that they still love, was the story of a party that was for the little guy and against the big guy. I told them, I think many of the Democrats running now still talk about the party that way, and they're making proposals to do things that both men say they want. But whatever the story the Democrats are telling, Russ and Mike do not see themselves in it. The one part of the Democrats' message that seems to be getting through to Russ and Mike is just how badly they all want to get rid of Trump, which just makes them want to defend him. One Democrat who's had to come up with a strategy for how to deal with the Russes and Mikes of the world is club president Dan Hardman. And his strategy could pretty much be boiled down to, let's just all try to chill out some. 
go easy on each other, maybe have a beer. Russ isn't so interested in hearing from any Democratic politicians right now. But he also made a point of telling me about this thing that Dan did for him after all this went down. Russ lost his wife, Carol, earlier this year. They'd been together since high school. After she died, Russ got really depressed. In the middle of that, Dan organized a dinner for him, and he held it at the Democratic Club. Russ says that, that meant so much to him. And so, there is one Democrat I know for a fact Russ respects, that he listens to, and that he likes. It's a guy who keeps letting him know he's welcome to sit with him at the bar, regardless of who's in the White House. Ben Calhoun is one of the producers of our show. Cold beer, conversation, just a couple old boys, a little time well wasted. Trying to figure out life, trying to figure out girls, trying to find our place in this crazy old world. Well, the program was produced today by Zoe Chase with help from Elna Baker. The people who put together today's show includes Manuel Berry, Ben Calhoun, Sean Cole, Damian Grave, Jessica Lassenhop, Mickey Neekwin, Amasitsi, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Ben Phelan, Nadia Raymond, Tracy Rowland, Robin Semyon, Christopher Sotala, Matt Tierney, and Nancy Updike. Our managing editors, Diane Wu. Our executive editors, David Kestenbaum. Special thanks today to Sarah Dryden-Peterson, Moses Achonu, the Pew Research Center, NDR in Hamburg, Betty Olivier, and Denny Grounds. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. We can stream our archive of over 680 episodes, and there's videos and tons of other stuff there, too. We get our app, which has all that stuff, and also let you download as many episodes as you want. Again, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, he just signed up with a hair club for men. He seems to be taking it very seriously, but... To be honest, I am not sure he understands it. My, my desire to have this club succeed is just humongous. I mean, I, I, any, anything goes wrong with this club, it's, I feel it's a part of me. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. A little truth, a little frustration. It's just us, man. Go on and say it. Cold beer, conversation. 